creative babble. They're the words many of us could never imagine saying. And I just want to die at home. 33-year-old Hope Yabera wants to find a peaceful place to die. Hope's battle with brain, lung, and bone cancer leaves her frail and weak. She has three children. Her youngest is herself fighting a terminal case of cystic fibrosis. She's a very strong woman, and she wants truly to, uh, to live. But unfortunately, the cancer seems to be stronger than she is at this point. This is audio from a documentary from the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. It was a story that touched the hearts of North Texans. A woman on her deathbed, she and her family facing eviction. Texans poured out their sympathy and opened their wallets to help. But now those people have learned it was all an act. She is not dying from cancer after $100,000 were raised in her benefit. Hope was not dying of cancer after all. Altogether, Hope had fooled friends and even her own family for eight years. That's right. For eight years, her community raised over $100,000 in her honor. But this wasn't just an elaborate scam. Hope Yabera almost dragged her own daughter to the grave. This is how the story ends, but it wasn't always this way. Yeah, I mean, by, by the accounts of everyone who knew her, she was like this bubbly, kind person, very caring, always sort of like looking after other people was fun, was smart, was, you know, life of the party. Andrea Dunlop is a novelist and author of three books. She's also the host of Nobody Should Believe Me, a podcast which centers around the story of Hope Yabera. Hope is very, very smart. She's very well-loved, had a big group of friends, had really nice family. Not the person that you would expect to go on to do these things. She was in the band in college. She was working as a lead chemist for a pharmaceutical company. She had, you know, three children. She was married. She really had a a pretty enviable life before all of this happened. You know, I think one of the things that her, her dad really thought back on was this incident in high school where she had back injury that doctors couldn't get to the bottom of. Here's a clip of Hope's father from the Nobody Should Believe Me podcast. Really wasn't until about 16 when she fell out of bed on a, we just tiled her floor and she fell on the tile floor and hurt her back supposedly. Like she couldn't walk and she was in a wheelchair for a couple months. And then they just, Paul, her her father sort of described pushing around the the football field because she was in the marching band. So we went to Texas Stadium, the football team was playing in playoffs and the band was out on the field and we rolled her out in her uniform out onto the field and my boss got to roll her back and we're doing wheelies and everything. Her goal was to be able to walk again to get her diploma. And it was a good six months, eight months of heavy caregiving, heavy, you know, heavy, heavy love. And, uh, for all of us. Um, and finally, she got better. Two or three doctors said there's nothing wrong with her. There's no reason she shouldn't be walking. Here's a clip of Hope's sister, Robin, from the Nobody Should Believe Me podcast. So she managed to be able to regain her ability to walk just in time to be able to walk across the stage and graduate. And finally, she got better. But uh, there was no rhyme or reason. It was a miracle. And then she was walking and then she went to college. She also, you know, started having these seizures that, again, you know, I believe like no one ever 
witnessed her having one, she would say she had a seizure. They had found her in her dorm um, on the ground. And so my mom, of course, rushed down there and mortified that her daughter is so far away and needing her. But just like before, Hope bounced back again and went to college and got a degree in chemistry. During her time at the university, she met her future husband and they had their first child. Pretty soon she got pregnant again. And besides those strange freak medical episodes, Hope's life seemed pretty normal, actually. Very typical family. She was working as a chemist. He was a school teacher. They were raising their now two children. They had a home. Just, I could say, the all-American dream. A dream. A dream family. A dream career. At least that's what she wanted everyone to believe. But behind closed doors, it was actually more like a nightmare. Hope Yabera's sick fantasy and desperate need for attention destroyed her family and almost brought her daughter to the brink of death. In today's episode, we're going to talk about how to identify Munchausen by proxy cases. And I'm not talking about the scandalous stories that you see on TV or the ones you've heard on my podcast in the Stalker series. In fact, we're going to focus on the less popular cases to show you that this form of abuse is far more common than we even realize. You may actually know someone who's a victim of Munchausen by proxy and not even know it. I'm Javier Leva, and this is Pretend. Stories about real people pretending to be someone else. Picture this, a foggy evening, the whisper of secrets in the air, and an invitation to step back into the glamorous and mysterious 1920s. That's the backdrop of June's Journey, the game that's been keeping me glued to my phone lately. Instead of doom scrolling on social media, I am actually playing the part of June Parker, a daring detective with a personal mission to solve her sister's murder. And let me tell you, it is a roller coaster of emotions and puzzles. What's to love? Well, first of all, the thrill of hunting for hidden objects. I'm a sucker for these kinds of games. It's kind of like those books that we grew up with, but with a storyline that keeps thickening. Plus, the game takes place in New York to Paris, uncovering clues of scandalous family secrets that make you feel like a real detective. If you're ready for a dose of mystery, romance, and the glamour of the 1920s, June's Journey is waiting for you. Download it for free on iOS and Android, and let's see who cracks the case first. It wasn't until Hope's second pregnancy that people close to her started noticing odd behaviors. Here's Robin, Hope's sister again. Seven months along, Hope uh, fell down the stairs and went into preterm labor. And so here this baby was born, um, 28 weeks, she was a pound and a half or, you know, some ridiculously small weight and she spent months in the NICU. After their second child, Hope says that she got pregnant again, but this time with twins. And then, you know, the big thing that started happening, she told her family and told her husband that she had developed Ewing sarcoma, which is a very rare form of bone cancer. 
she went on this cancer journey that encompassed eight years of her life that had two dramatic remissions. She had extremely elaborate remission parties, one that had hundreds of people at that she, you know, went skydiving and like landed in the front yard. She got these very elaborate tattoos to celebrate her remission. Her brother, she and her brother got matching tattoos at one point. This is also when she had the twin pregnancy. She claimed to have been pregnant with twin girls and she claimed she lost them like about six months in. Always pregnancy loss is upsetting, but that is an especially dramatic and upsetting place to lose a pregnancy. The paralysis, the seizures, the fake cancer, all of these mysterious health problems were created to bring attention to hope. That is called fictitious disorder imposed on self, otherwise known as Munchausen syndrome. It wasn't until years later that she crossed the line and started purposely harming her child. This condition is called Munchausen by proxy. The proxy part is when a caretaker, usually the mother, intentionally makes their dependent or loved one sick for the purpose of gaining attention. Andrea Dunlop told me that she was immediately drawn to Hope Yabera's story. You have a personal connection to this world of Munchausen by proxy, right? Yeah, that's right. My sister has been investigated for Munchausen by proxy twice. I want to be clear that she has not been charged with a crime. On the first occasion, the state did not bring any charges about against her. On the second occasion, they did, and a family court judge dismissed those charges. And there were never any criminal charges filed, although there was a two-year-long, I believe, criminal investigation for the second case. We are not in touch with my sister. She essentially cut us out of her life. Ever since Andrea's experience with her sister, she spent a large part of her professional career searching for answers. In her quest to better understand Munchausen by proxy, Andrea couldn't help but compare her sister's story to that of Hope Yabera. Yeah, and that must be very difficult for you to talk about and not only talk about, but also share with the world. Somewhere along the way, you were probably in denial too, right? That this was ever happening. But what were, what were some of those signs that may, maybe made you question that something was wrong? Before that first investigation and before she ever had her older child, my sister had a really long history of lying about health things. There are many things that, that I don't know for sure. It's very, you know, it, it's very hard to some of these things we look back on, you know, some of these surgeries she had on, on her back and on her knee when she was in high school. But for sure, we did know that she lied about a couple of things. There was a couple of very dramatic incidents. One was that she claimed to be losing her hair when she was in high school. And my mother took her to the dermatologist and the dermatologist told my mother that she was shaving it off. And then a few years later, she had a... Uh, pregnancy, a twin pregnancy that she lost about six months in. And once she lost the pregnancy, allegedly, we sort of all started talking to each other, those of us in her life, and it became clear pretty fast that she did not lose the pregnancy when and how she said she did. And I think as we sort of started to unravel it, it became pretty clear that she probably never was pregnant to begin with. And it was very elaborate. I mean, she looked pregnant. We had a baby shower. She had names for the babies. 
Andrea says that the hospital started getting suspicious and eventually reported Andrea's sister to Child Protective Services, which resulted in the child being removed from her home during the investigation. It was really a terrifying situation. And I didn't know any of the things I know now. I mean, these are that that was my impetus for learning everything that I have learned about this topic. So at the time, we were very in the dark. Cases like Hope Yabera and Andrea's sister have been undetected for years. And that's because we as a society don't know what to look for. And even when we see the abuse happening right in front of us, we don't want to believe it's real. Here's Andrea Dunlop again. When you ask, like, why do people get sort of strung along on these things for so long? I think one of the things that really messes with you is that there are these periods of normalcy, especially earlier on. There are these periods of normalcy in between these big events. So I can see someone even hearing my story and thinking like, well, your sister shaved her hair off and then she faked her pregnancy. Like, how did you just like blow that off? Like, how did you? And I think because things sort of went back to normal after that or appeared to. And like, you don't really want to fixate on that bad stuff. Like Hope Yabera, Andrea's sister started showing signs of Munchausen syndrome. But it wasn't until she claimed to have twins that it started shifting into what we call Munchausen by proxy. I was curious, does it usually start out this way? Does one behavior lead to the other? My name is Beatrice Yorker. I'm a psychiatric nurse and an attorney, and I've spent my career as an academic, a nurse educator, and doing research on Munchausen by proxy. Let's say their baby is a preemie, and they find out that the neonatal intensive care unit is a very nurturing, exciting place where you get all this emotional gratification for being the mother of a critically ill child. For some people, this can be a good place to be, a rewarding place that they want to get back to. Then the baby goes home, and the mom notices that the baby is not eating well. They freak out and then send the baby back to the hospital. Because it starts to feel comforting. It starts to feel nurturing. It feels like at home. And then they start actually causing things or exaggerating what's going on, saying the baby is throwing up all the time. The mom might claim that the baby can't keep fluids down. She insists that the baby needs a feeding tube. So those are the kinds of things that can start causing this behavior of using your child to get medical attention. Well, that's really interesting because you describe the scenario where it maybe it wasn't intentional, like maybe they didn't walk in to this scenario thinking that they were going to hurt their baby in order to get the attention, but they almost like capitalized or seized that moment, right? Like that was like an opportunity for them to gain attention. Is that kind of how uh, one way to understand it? It works both ways. It works both ways. There are so many cases of Munchausen by proxy where the mother has a history of a premature birth But then when we look at the records, we find out they actually did things to cause a premature birth. We will find many cases where they've taken medicines or things that would cause labor to happen faster. They fall downstairs or something because it's part of the Munchausen syndrome. But then they go, oh my gosh, if my baby is critically ill, 
I get all that attention for my baby. I don't have to be the ill one. There are very few academic studies done on Munchausen by proxy. However, one article published in the British Journal of Psychiatry gets us closer to understanding this disorder. The researchers evaluated 28 mothers who were referred to by the courts for detailed psychiatric assessment between the year of 1996 and 2009. They found that over half of the moms they studied had a current problem with always thinking something was wrong with their body. For example, symptoms that can't be fully explained by a doctor or have no clear cause. Almost two-thirds of the mothers studied had either a current or a past history of pretending to be sick themselves. That is Munchausen syndrome. The study also found that over half of the participants exhibited pathological lying, which often began at a very early age and continued throughout adolescence. The lies were often compulsive and were accompanied by other deceitful behaviors such as hoax telephone calls and financial fraud. Hmm, does that sound familiar? The study also found that a third of the participants had links to early abuse. And in almost all the cases, when confronted about the lying, the women often responded by denying their contribution. I think that the, the label Munchausen by proxy, I think it's becoming more well-known, you know, and recognized. Like you could stop somebody in the street and they might know what you're talking about vaguely. But medical child abuse, which that's actually what it really is, takes the floweriness out of it, right? And just cuts to the chase. I mean, that's basically what it is. It's a mother committing child abuse through medicine. Yeah, they're using the medical system as a tool to abuse their child. Yes, that's that's completely right. But then there is the issue of trying to actually make it fit an existing law that is on the books, which is a whole other hurdle. So there are actually lots of forms of this abuse that this abuse can take that does not meet the standard for like criminal prosecution. Like I've explained before in the Stalker series, charging someone with medical child abuse is no easy feat. You have to have an extensive criminal investigator who collaborates with hospitals and medical experts to build a case. And when you have a case, then you have to convince prosecutors and the courts that a crime was committed. While the justice system figures all that out, mothers are still killing their children and getting away with it. Here's Beatrice Yorker again. The more and more I, I see serial killers on the same spectrum because yes. it's this lack of empathy, you know, yes. that I feel like they have in common where they treat people as objects. And somebody told me, and this really stuck with me, they're like, actually, people with Munchausen by proxy perpetrators are actually worse than serial killers because at least serial killers don't kill the people that they love. You know, and that was so profound to me to hear that. Absolutely. I, there is quite a strong connection. And Munchausen mothers, perpetrators do sometimes kill their kids. The book Death of Innocence is about a published medical study where a doctor figured that kids who died of SIDS was genetic because it was happening to several kids in the same families. When the researchers and prosecutors went back and actually looked at the medical files, they said, oh no, this was a case of a mother repeatedly suffocating her babies. This was not SIDS. Some of these mothers were serial killers of their babies. But you're onto something, which is the personalities. 
we have studied perpetrators of Munchausen by proxy. 95% are biological mothers, which is why I just say mothers generically. There are some fathers. I have videotape of a father smothering his baby in the hospital. There are foster mothers. Some foster mothers sign up for, they say, we want the medically fragile kids. And then they thrive on those kids being medically fragile. I'm telling you, these cases happen all the time. We just never attach the label Munchausen by proxy to it. And when confronted with the truth, friends and family still believe the perpetrator. We as a society refuse to accept that this is actually happening when the truth is so painfully obvious. It's a very hard thing to wrap your head around. And I think a lot of people cannot get there. And when I say a lot of people, I don't just mean people who are, you know, the the friends and family. I mean, I don't think a lot of judges can get there. I don't think a lot of detectives can get there. I don't think a lot of CPS workers can get there. There's something about this kind of abuse that really is so hard for people to process. And I think it's because it is really sort of the worst thing that you can possibly imagine. It's a mother who is deliberately, knowingly taking time to do research and plan and keep this hoax going about their child's health and really torture their child. And this is the deadliest form of child abuse. It is fatal in more cases than other forms of child abuse. And so it's a really horrible thing to have to wrap your head around. In so many cases, these women present as utterly normal. They look like a loving mom. They don't sound crazy. They don't sound delusional. And they're not. These are women who are knowingly carrying out deceptive behaviors. So that's why they don't seem crazy is because they're not. They have an underlying disorder, but it's not something that makes someone not criminally culpable for their behavior. No, I'm glad you made that distinction. It just sounds, I think, the way we perceive it in the media and all that, it sounds like uh, some, something that they can't help. But these are people who are very conscious and, and, and their actions are very deliberate, right? We do think that people who do this have a very strong compulsion to do it, but they are They are in control of themselves. It's not, you know, it's an impulsive behavior, but it's a knowing behavior. But Javier, if these mothers are faking these illnesses, then wouldn't a simple medical exam or a blood work show that they're lying? Well, perpetrators know how to work around that. Like any great magician, these mothers create the illusion of a disease. Some mothers have been known to give their child certain medicines or substances to make them throw up or have diarrhea. Some won't even give their child enough to eat, so it looks like they can't gain weight. An unsuspecting doctor could be easily fooled, especially if they're trying to chase down the constellation of symptoms that they're describing. Here's Beatrice Yorker again. Perpetrators of Munchausen by proxy love mysterious diseases. Can you rattle off a list of some of those diseases like cerebral palsy? What do they gravitate towards? So we see... POTS. There's mitochondrial disorder. There's attention deficit disorder, which is easily confused with seizures. Seizures are so easy to fabricate because most of the time, even an EEG, you know, where you hook the electrodes up or an MRI or something diagnostic, it still won't see seizure activity unless it's a really bad seizure disorder. So 
it's pretty standard to have doctors and neurologists order anti-seizure medications based on the mother saying this is a seizure. Long COVID is a real thing. It's very real and it's very hard. They still don't know how to treat it or what to do and how to help. But a lot of those parents are going to be demanding and asking and doctor shopping and trying to figure out how to fix their kids from long COVID. And mixed in with them are going to be the Munchausen's. And then doctor shopping. As soon as the doctor starts confronting the mother or saying, I'm not going to order these extra tests, or I'm going to wean the child off the medicine, or I'm not going to write a referral for a wheelchair. As soon as that starts happening, then they'll go to the next doctor who will. These mothers are known to stop at nothing to get the diagnosis that they want. And they're not just manipulating the doctors and nurses. Munchausen mothers also have a chokehold on the entire family. Even to the point where the family, being affected, believes the narrative. Take, for example, Chelsea Fernandez from the stalker case. She went on my Instagram page to defend her medical conditions. She wrote, or at least we think that's her account. She said, all my surgeries were necessary. A surgeon wouldn't do surgery if it wasn't necessary. And I don't give two Fs that, quote, my rights were taken away. In this wicked world, I'm glad my parents are choosing to protect me. It's almost as if the mother has the control of a cult leader. The door's unlocked, the windows are open, yet nobody under her control willingly leaves. Here's Detective Mike Weber again, who you heard from in the Stalker series. Detective Weber specializes in cases involving Munchausen by proxy and was one of the investigators on the Hope Yabara case. Oh yeah, they can they can rally people to their cause. Very much like the Olivia Gant case in Colorado, she had got her son put in palliative care, which is hospice for children, and um, was trying to cut off his food and water. And thankfully, there was a, a smart hospice nurse who tricked mom, conned mom into going home for 30 hours, and she just fed the kid whatever he wanted to eat. He was eating burritos and everything else. He was on TPN, he had, you know, the whole the feeding tube, the central line, the whole thing. And she watched him eat burritos, scarf from down, have absolutely no gastrointestinal issues. They have huge persuasive powers over people. Which brings us back to Hope Yabera. After Hope claims that she lost two twins six months into her pregnancy, she got pregnant again. That miscarriage wasn't real because those twins never existed. But this new pregnancy was very real. And she will soon direct her crazed need for attention on her new baby daughter. By the way, I'm about to describe some pretty disturbing stuff, so if you're sensitive to medical child abuse, just fast forward 60 seconds. From the time her youngest daughter was born, Hope found new reasons to return to the hospital. First, she claimed that the baby couldn't swallow, so she had doctors surgically insert a feeding tube. It was through that feeding tube that Hope was able to trick doctors into believing that her daughter was dying of cystic fibrosis. How was she able to create this illusion? Well, by force-feeding her daughter a dangerous amount of salt. Doctors also inserted a central line surgically placed, allowing medication to go straight into her heart. This was how Hope was able to drain her daughter's blood to make it look like she was anemic. Make no mistake, what Hope was doing to her daughter was more lethal than the actual disease itself. Thank God the hospital staff was able to figure out that something was wrong, which eventually led to Hope's arrest. I'm happy to report that Hope's daughter is now 18 years old 
and has made a full recovery. Next time on Pretend, we're going to talk about Hope Ubera's downfall. How did family, healthcare workers, and law enforcement put all the pieces together? Plus, we're going to talk about how to spot Munchausen by proxy and what happens when we get it wrong. That's next time on Pretend. Part two of this series is available right now on Pretend Plus on Apple Podcasts. But don't worry, if you don't have Apple Podcasts, you can always listen to all the bonus episodes and all early releases ad-free on Patreon. I'll have a link to Patreon in the show notes. Remember, when you subscribe to Pretend, you can listen without any of those pesky ads, plus you get all the bonus episodes that didn't make it on this feed. It's like a whole other show. Plus, you'll be supporting a show which honestly couldn't happen without you. If you observe warning signs of medical child abuse, you should contact the hospital treating the victim, CPS, and the police. If you're a teacher, medical professional, or law enforcement professional, and you want to know how to handle cases like this, visit MunchausenSupport.com for a list of guidelines. Also, check out Andrea Dunlop's excellent podcast called Nobody Should Believe Me. I listened to season one in one setting. It was amazing and a perfect companion to the Stalker series. After listening to it, it really puts everything into perspective. Andrea talks about her personal experience, and she even interviews Hope Yabera. And one of my favorite episodes is when she talks about the husbands of the Munchausen mothers. Super interesting. So go check that out. It's called Nobody Should Believe Me. Okay, that's it for now. I'll talk to you next week. Creative Babble.